0: Good morning. morning. Hear the word of the Lord from Luke 1, 26 through 38. The birth of Jesus foretold. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, you, Marilyn. Let's pray for God's help as we think about the passage. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Here's a passage, Lord, that uh, some of us have heard at least several times over the last uh, week or so, a familiar and crucial part of the Christmas story. And we pray, Lord, as we think about it today, that you'd give us fresh ears to hear, fresh hearts to receive what you want us to receive, uh, that uh, no matter what kind of Christmas we've had, what kind of place we are in our journey of faith, that this would be a time where we hear you clearly speak to us For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said at the beginning of the service, today is Boxing Day. If uh, that's not a familiar term to you, it's a, a holiday in the United Kingdom and also in other British Commonwealth countries. Growing up in Northern Ireland, I always have associated Boxing Day with two things. First of all, my dad belonged to a vintage Riley car club and on Boxing Day every year they would have a racing rally at a large farm with dirt roads around the farm. Each driver and passenger would start their timed circuit, kind of the old Le Mans rally way where you'd run from the start line to the car and then drive the designated course around the farm, the fastest driver uh, being the winner. It's usually cold and wet and dirty, but I still remember those races very fondly. And the other Boxing Day Association for me is it's one of the biggest days in the football, or soccer as you call it, football calendar. I still remember some of the scores of my team, Manchester United, from Boxing Day fixtures in the 1980s. That's that's how sad I am, really. But but the historical roots of Boxing Day go back to the 19th century, and, and have nothing to do with boxing, with punching, rather as a show of appreciation For all their hard work on Christmas Day and, indeed, throughout the year, the household servants of wealthy British aristocracy would be given paid time off and then small gift boxes. And servants and tradespeople also prepared gift boxes to share with their own families. Some historians also attribute uh, Boxing Day to the small boxes of alms that were placed near church doors uh, during Advent requesting donations to help the poor, and then on the day after Christmas, members of the clergy would distribute those donations to the needy residents throughout the community. December 26th was chosen for the distribution of those charitable uh, giving because Boxing Day, not to get too confusing here, but the Boxing Day is also St. Stephen's Day, which is what they call it in the south of Ireland, where we lived for a while, the day dedicated to St. Stephen, known from the Book of Acts for his good acts and for being the first Christian martyr. But most, if not all of us, would have received our gift boxes of various shapes and sizes yesterday and opened them then. But this morning on this Boxing Day, we've got one more gift to open together. You might have received some lovely gifts yesterday. You might have been disappointed by the gifts that you received. I don't know. But I want to suggest that the gift that we're unwrapping together this morning is going to be better than any of the other gifts you got because it's the very gift of Christmas. And Mary shows us in the passage that Marilyn read for us there, how to unwrap this gift of Christmas. We're going to think about it uh, through the three stages of the story here. First of all, the surprising announcement. Secondly, the model of faith. And thirdly, the importance of community. The surprising announcement, the model of faith, and the importance of community. First, then, the surprising announcement. Look at uh, verses 26 to 27 again. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, there are a couple of surprises right away here, even before we get to the actual announcement. The first surprise is the location where the angel Gabriel shows up. In the passage right before the one we are looking at today, Luke tells us about Gabriel's visit to Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest who was serving in the temple in Jerusalem. And that would have made a lot of sense to the general public at that time. That's where you would expect to find an angel, with a religious person in a religious setting. But look where he's turned up now. He's turned up in Nazareth. Nazareth was about 65 miles from Jerusalem in Galilee. The general perspective on Nazareth was summed up by the disciple Nathanael. We read in John chapter 1 that when Nathanael later on heard that the Messiah had come from Nazareth, he, he said, has anything good ever come from Nazareth? So it was obviously not exactly the most sought-after zip code for the upwardly mobile, but that's where Gabriel has come to. But there's a second surprise, and that's the person who's getting the visit from the angel. Again, Zechariah had made sense. He was a priest in the temple for his once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to serve at the temple altar. But here, it's a young girl, a teenager called Mary. And Luke tells us that she was pledged to be married to a man called Joseph. So Mary and Joseph weren't married yet, but they were in a stable relationship. That's all the jokes you're getting today. It took you a little while, though, but... One of the facts often lost in the telling of the Christmas story is just how young Mary probably probably was. In Mary's day, girls could get married as young as the age of 12. And here's how marriage generally worked back then. A couple became betrothed by the drawing up of a deed. The payment of the bride price was... Uh, all of that happened about a year before the actual marriage. And then through those 12 months prior to the marriage the bride and groom were considered legally joined together and could only be separated by death or divorce and also during that time the bride remained under the the father's roof under his authority and then the marriage 12 months later was marked by intercourse between the betrothed couple so mary was in this 12 month betrothal stage she was a teenage girl in the back end of nowhere who had just come face to face with an angel of the Lord and whose life was about to be turned completely upside down. Upside down because if the location was a surprise and the recipient was a surprise, the greatest surprise was the message that was part of this announcement. Look at verses 28 to 33. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, it's important to recognize that Gabriel's opening words here at, t- about Mary being favored are not sort of the equivalent of one of those many TV talent shows, whether to do with baking or singing or anything of the like, where you know it's kind of come down to Mary and one other contestant. And the presenter says, and tonight's winner, who gets to be the mother of God is, and then the camera pans back and forth between the, the faces of the two final contestants, and the winner is Mary. That's not what's happening here. This was not a competition where God had been watching for godly teenage girls and Mary won. The word used for favored here is the same word as we get the word grace. That is everything that had happened and everything that was going to happen was an act of sheer grace on God's part. There would be no grounds for boasting about what was about to happen. There were other virgins in Nazareth. God could have prepared them, but by his grace, God had chosen Mary to give birth to a son whose name was to be Jesus. And Gabriel summarizes who this son will be in one word. He will be great and then focuses on one particular aspect of his greatness. This Jesus will be a king of. Like no other, this Jesus is the promised king anticipated by God's people through the entire Old Testament. But this king will reign over an eternal and universal kingdom. In other words, this king will be a king forever over a kingdom that will never end. Now, you can imagine that Mary's just a little taken aback by a visit from an angel telling her that she is going to give birth to the son of God. She was struggling even before Gabriel got into the details of this son. She was struggling when all he'd said was that she was highly favored. That's what we see in verse 29. She was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Gabriel gives her all these stunning truths about who this son will be, but it's clear there's still something in her brain, in her mind, that is just more basic and mundane Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? How does this work since I haven't had sex? I'm not married yet. I'm just pledged to be married. I'm still a virgin. How can this be? And Gabriel explains how this will happen. It's words that we confess in the Apostles' Creed every week that we say it, that she will conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, there may be some of us who have a hard time with this truth, this doctrine of the virgin birth. It just seems far-fledged. It seems crazy, perhaps. And you almost get the sense that Luke knew that readers would struggle with this part of the story because you may not have noticed it, but he actually mentioned three times that Mary was a virgin in the passage, just to make sure that we don't try to suggest that it was, well, maybe a mistake by the scribes or something like that. Let me suggest there's an underlying question when it comes to belief in the virgin birth, and it's this. It's a simple question. Do you believe that God can perform miracles? Do you believe that the God of this universe can perform supernatural acts outside the normal rules of science or not? Because if your answer to that is yes, and most of the people I talk to about this say, yeah, I I believe that's true. If your answer is yes, then, then a virgin birth fits perfectly in such a worldview. It's not a strange thing at all. Your answer is no, I'd love to have a conversation with you about that, some more. But whether your answer is yes or no, Mary here presents us with a model of how to work through something that we find hard to fathom or accept. She provides us here with a model of working faith as we unwrap the gift of Christmas. Let me suggest to you three ways that Mary models faith here. Number one comes in verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now there's a temptation when we read the Christmas stories of angels and the announcement of a virgin birth and so on, to say, well, you know, people back then, they were just so gullible. They they would just believe anything and everything. But look at Mary. She hardly comes across as the gullible type here, does she? When Gabriel tells her about what's about to happen, she, she doesn't say, Wow, you know, I always knew the Messiah was going to come one day, and I'm, it's going to happen through me. That's just wonderful. She, that's not her reaction here. The fact is that Mary has no framework in which to understand what's going on. So what does she do? She enters into some strenuous thinking. When Luke writes here that Mary, quote, tried to discern what kind of greeting this might be, he uses a word that literally means she logicked through. She started to engage in strenuous thinking, focused analysis about what Gabriel was saying. She starts to ask herself questions like, is this a dream? Could it be a hallucination? Did I have a bad, bad experience with dinner last night? Is this really happening? And she had to do that because she didn't have a framework that fit A visitation from an angel telling her that she would give birth to the Son of God. Mary was a Jew. Jews were the last people to believe that God would ever take on human flesh, that a human being could ever be worshipped. So for Mary to accept what she was being told here, she had to enter into some strenuous thinking, looking at the evidence. I'm guessing that for some of us today, that's, maybe a step that would be good for us to take through the rest of this Christmas season into the new year. Perhaps you're here today, or maybe you're watching online because you like Christmas, you like the carols, you like it so much you'll even tune in on the day after Christmas. But really in your mind, so much of this stuff fits in the category of myth and fable. And I challenge you not to Take my word for it, or to take other people's word against it, but to look at the evidence yourself and do some strenuous thinking. Or perhaps your interest has been piqued because you know other Christians who whose faith seems so strong and you say, you know, I wish I had their faith. But you've always thought that sort of meant just waiting for something to take hold of you, to grip you, something to descend upon you, to give you what you're looking for, and until then it's just a matter of waiting and and hoping. But Mary shows us here that faith doesn't work that way. Faith starts by thinking and reasoning, it starts by logicking through the evidence. Faith is undoubtedly more than thinking, but it's certainly not less. So you look at the accounts of the Gospels and ask probing questions. For example, given Mary's worldview that we've just thought about for a moment, what must have happened to her and others to overcome the enormous? intellectual and cultural resistance to the idea that God would take on human flesh? What overcame that resistance so that they could believe that this message from the angel was real and true? And I'd suggest to you that the most logical explanation is that what is written here actually happened. So as C.S. Lewis put it, the reason I believe in Christianity is because nobody's clever enough or crazy enough to have thought this up mary models her faith by strenuous thinking but secondly interestingly she models faith not only in strenuous thinking but also through what we might call honest doubting look at verse 34 and mary said to the angel how will this be since i am a virgin you know the church over the years has done people a great disservice by at times giving the impression that in Christianity, doubt is the big no-no, that you're not allowed to doubt, that you're not allowed to ask questions. Any doubts, please just leave them at the doorway before you come in here, because doubt doesn't belong within these four walls. And then at the other extreme are those in our culture who sometimes get referred to these days as deconstructionists in terms of their faith or ex-evangelicals who almost seem to treat doubt as the ideal. You know, doubt's sophisticated. It's something you aspire to because it shows you're somehow deeper or more intellectually savvy than everybody else. But the Bible rejects both of those as it seems to distinguish between what we might call dishonest doubt and honest doubt. If you ask a question and you're not really looking for an answer, That's dishonest doubt. The question is really just a rhetorical question, a cynical question, a question with a sneer. Because underneath the question is the attitude, I really have no interest to know the answer. And the reason dishonest doubt is bad in God's eyes is because it's really not doubt at all. It's actually a dogmatic kind of perverted faith because it's absolutely convinced there is no answer. Mary's doubt here doesn't fit that category. Her doubt is honest doubt, doubt because she's asking a question for which she genuinely thinks um, wants, to, wants an answer to. And that kind of doubt takes humility. It says, I don't get this right now. I don't understand how on earth this could happen, but I realize that I don't see the whole picture. But there's someone else who I think does. It's a kind of doubt that takes bravery. Mary asks a question here, the answer to which may very well take her way outside her comfort zone. She doesn't understand how this can happen, but if it does, it's gonna ha- cause her to have to change direction, change her worldview, change her life. But here's one of, the, one of the most beautiful things in this account. Far from being punished for her expression of doubt, Mary is rewarded for her honest doubt. Gabriel explains how she is a virgin will conceive, and then he gives Mary these words, Nothing is impossible with God. That is one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture. Nothing is impossible with God. These words actually have a long history in the Bible. These were the same words told to Abraham's wife Sarah when she was old and barren, waiting for a promised son. And here are words for you and me to carry right into the upcoming new year that whatever the concerns, whatever your pressures, whatever the worries... Nothing's impossible with God. And the fact is, we wouldn't have these words here if Mary hadn't expressed her honest doubt. Incidentally, if you'd like a safe place to think through the claims of Christianity, a safe place to express doubts that you have, let me uh, encourage you to consider participating in our Hope Explored course that we'll be running on Zoom online over three Tuesday evenings in February. It's a short course that explores Christianity through the same gospel of Luke that we're looking at today, what it claims, what Christianity offers. You'd be more than welcome to join us. So Mary's faith model: strenuous thinking, honest doubting, but then third, complete surrender. Look at her response to the assurance from Gabriel that nothing is impossible with God. Verse 38, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Do you hear the the willing surrender in those words? Mary was giving her yes to what Gabriel had told her, knowing that as much as there would be honor to to what she was being called to do, there was also a cost. I think we easily forget the cost this surrender meant for Mary. But it's perhaps easiest to see if we compare her situation to her cousin Elizabeth, who's mentioned at the end of the passage. Elizabeth's situation is explained earlier in Luke chapter 1. She was much older than Mary, but was childless in that culture. Childlessness meant shame and disgrace. But Gabriel had come to Elizabeth's husband, Zachariah, to announce that Elizabeth would indeed give birth to a son, a son whom we would know as John the Baptist. And that pregnancy for Elizabeth Removed the shame she would have felt at being childless. But with the announcement to Mary, she's in a very different situation. Her pregnancy was not going to remove shame, but in a sense bring shame. There was no way in her small town and that traditional society that everyone was not going to know. That even if 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 Joseph married her as quickly as possible, which he did, she still was going to give birth just a few months after they were married. People would be talking. What was she going to say? Well, I know it looks bad, but you know, there was this angel. Mary knew that to say yes was to be ready to become a second-class citizen, a marginalized disgrace in that community, but she says yes. She's willing to find her identity in God's Call on her life rather than what her neighbors would think of her. Complete surrender. So, Mary models faith that involves strenuous thinking, honest doubting, and complete surrender. But lastly, I want us to see the importance of community in what's going on here. God doesn't expect Mary to do this on her own. Look at verse 36 and behold, your relative Elizabeth. In her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called Baron. I think Gabriel tells Mary about her cousin Elizabeth, not just as a little bit of encouraging news to this soon-to-be-pregnant teenager, but also as a nudge to Mary to go see Elizabeth. Mary has indicated that she's a willing servant, but there must surely have been still questions, uncertainties, But here was the one person to whom Mary could go who wasn't going to think that Mary was crazy. And together they could process what was going on. And if you read on in Luke 1, past our passage today, you find that indeed Elizabeth helps Mary see that indeed this was the Lord doing all of this. And that Mary indeed was to be the mother of the Lord. It's through talking through this with Elizabeth that Mary is brought to such a point of joy that she bursts into song in what is traditionally referred to as the Magnificat, Mary's song. But Mary wouldn't have moved to such joy without the help of community. It's a reminder to all of us that Christianity is not for lone rangers. It's not for isolationists. There are things that you're seeing about God right now through your Bible reading, through your prayer, through conversations with other people, that I'm not seeing right now, but I would be really helped to know and vice versa. None of us is able to draw out the inexhaustible riches and truths of who God is and what he has done. And that's why he calls us into community, into church, into growth groups, so we might help one another, not just surrender to him, but to also find absolute joy in all that he's doing. And if you're someone here today who's still Working out what you believe, this this applies to you as well. Almost no one comes to God in a real way without other people, without community, without talking to people who know a little bit more than you do. That's the importance of community. But there's one other dimension to this community I want to point to as we finish. In Matthew's gospel, we read of something that Luke doesn't report, namely the angel's visit to Joseph. This visit takes place after Gabriel's visit to Mary. Indeed, after Mary has become pregnant, Matthew tells us that Joseph was a righteous man. He didn't want to expose Mary to public disgrace, so he was going to quietly divorce her. But you can imagine the turmoil that's going on in his heart and mind, asking questions. How could she? What on earth was going on? So God's grace to him, he gets an angelic visit too. And the angel explains to Joseph what Gabriel had explained to Mary, that this son was conceived through the Holy Spirit. But look at what Joseph is told about this son to be born to Mary in Matthew one twenty one She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Both Mary and Joseph are told that their son will be called Jesus, but they're given different but complementary information about Jesus. And when you look at Luke and Matthew's respective accounts side by side, you realize that that God was enabling Mary to put all the pieces together, not just through Elizabeth, but surely through Joseph as well. You can imagine that one or two of those early conversations between Mary and Joseph were probably just a little tension-filled But after Joseph's visit from the angel, the tension dissipates, and surely they must have talked about what they'd learned. Mary tells Joseph that this son is to be the king on David's throne who will reign forever. Picture of his power and sovereignty. And Joseph maybe said, you know, that's fascinating because the angel told me that he's going to save people from their sins. The only way God has ever rescued people from their sins is through sacrifice. I wonder wonder what the angel meant by that. And through those conversations, Mary and Joseph perhaps get an inkling of what we now know in much fuller detail because this Jesus was to be born as the king whose mission was to die for sinners. He's the king. That's why the call on your life and my life, like on Mary's, is to surrender to him. I wonder if you've ever noticed in the Christmas story that Mary and Joseph are not given permission to name the child themselves. I mean, parents are always allowed to give their children their name. They spend a lot of time working out what name to give them because the parents are in charge. They're they're older. They get to make that decision. But Mary was about to give birth to the first person ever born who was older than his mother. So here was the message to Mary and Joseph. You don't manage me. He manages you. That's the message to all of us. We don't manage Jesus. He manages us. You can't invite Jesus into your life but hold on to the controls. You can't tell Jesus, you know, I'd love to have you in my life, but this stuff over here, I've, I've got that under control. You don't need to touch that. Thank you. He's the king. You don't manage Jesus. He manages you. But he's the king who came into this world to rescue you. I mentioned earlier How Mary saw the cost of surrender, but willingly did so. But here's what is so important for us to see about that. That whatever it might cost you, might cost any of us to come to Jesus. Maybe a relationship that we'd need to reconsider. Maybe some moral issues. Maybe finances. Maybe reputation. Whatever it would cost us, it cost Jesus vastly more to get near to you. Because it would cost him his life. The angel's announcement to Joseph that this son would be called Jesus because he would save people from their sins set out the mission statement of Jesus from conception. Actually, we could probably say from before the foundation of the world, that, that Jesus wasn't primarily sent to set an example, although he did. He wasn't primarily sent to heal the sick, although he did. He wasn't primarily sent to provide helpful lessons for you and me to know how to live, although he did. He was born to die for you and for me. He was born to do this for us because we couldn't do it for ourselves, to pay the penalty we deserve for our rebellion against the God who made us and sustains us so that we might be reconciled to him. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinner reconciled. We sing about it every Christmas. And with that reconciliation with with God comes the joy of which Mary tasted, comes the peace that the angels sang of to the shepherds, comes the love and wonder without which our souls starve. Mary and Joseph got a glimpse of this. We now see much more of the canvas, but if you want to see even more of the canvas this Christmas and into the new year than you do now, you and I need community. Community in which we can think strenuously, doubt honestly and surrender completely as we unwrap this gift of christmas so happy boxing day let's pray heavenly father we thank you for your word we thank you for mary we confess as protestants we kind of set mary to the side at at times uh, failing to see what a model of faith she is to us We thank you for this account. We thank you for her honest doubt so that we would receive this great promise that nothing is impossible with you. As we go into a new year, nothing is impossible with you. So strengthen our faith. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, our Savior, the King. We ask this in his name. Amen.